Well, good evening to all of you. It's great to see you. Glad you could be here with us here on this Friday. Uh, it's, I know for some of you it's been a long week, and um, for some of you this is your first time here, so we want to welcome you. Uh, glad to have you here this uh, Friday evening. Um, for those of you who didn't know or just need a little bit of a ref- refresher, uh, our church, uh, our fellowship group has been going through what life looks like in the church or life in the church uh, this this summer. So uh, the one another's. And last week we had a chance to take a look at what encouragement looks like in the church, how that plays a role in the church. And this this week we're going to examine what liberty in the church looks like. But before we get to uh, our message, let's open up again once uh, in, in, a, in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you for your loving kindness to us. How day after day your mercy is new every morning, and how we can find our hope in you. Father, as we examine this, this topic of liberty in the church, may you give us soft hearts to consider whether the things that we feel like we are free to do are, in fact, honoring to you. And when it comes to being mindful of other people and uh, and their consciences, may we be mindful of them and be willing to lay down our right to do whatever we wish. Father, we pray that you give us humble attitudes and that you would help us as we study this passage uh, to really come to a conviction of what you would have us do. We're grateful for you and for your word, and we pray that, Lord, you would bring great glory and honor to yourself. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. A little over a week ago, we had a chance to, as a, as a fellowship group and even as a nation, we had a chance to celebrate the 4th of July. And that's a holiday that really only has significance to us, right? Go figure. It only has significance to us because we're commemorating the day where, we, where our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence. Our country is built on that Our country is built on this idea that we want freedom. We're a country of freedom. And even though we don't have a unique claim on freedom, we as a country, we love freedom. We are all about freedom. Everyone who comes to this country, they come here because they want the freedom in order to pursue a better life, in order to pursue happiness. Freedom is a big deal to Americans. And though we do live in a free country, there is a very real sense in which we are not truly free. We have laws that tell us, that govern what we can and cannot do. I cannot cross the street on a red light without penalty if I feel like it because the laws tell me that I can't do it. So if the, if the police stop me and say, you violated a, law, violated a law, I can't say, well, it's a free country. I can do it if I want, right? We still get dinged for that. So we're, we're not necessarily in a free country. We have a government that taxes us. They dish out penalties to us when we fail to pay our taxes, whether it's the right amount, whether it's on time or at all, right? We still get dinged for that. I mean, here in San Francisco, we even have a government that tells us where to stick our trash, right? You put it in the compost, you put it in the recycle, and in the trash. You can't stick some of the other things in, in uh, you can't stick, the, comp- you can't stick the, the recycle in the compost, you can't stick the trash in the compost, you have to put it in the compost, right? We are being told what to do. So we're not really free like we think we are. But 
despite these very real limits on our freedoms, we as a people, we cling very tightly to our rights. And we are more than willing to fight others legally or even physically when our rights are trampled upon or threatened. Now, while we as a church may not, and hopefully will continue not to fight others legally or physically when we disagree with them uh, in terms of our freedoms, there is a real threat to church unity when it comes to what many have referred to as gray areas in church, gray areas in life. The Bible tells us very clearly what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, but what happens when something falls right in the middle between right and wrong? What happens if it falls in that gray area? What do we do when an issue comes up? And it could be interpreted by some as good, but it could also be interpreted as some as wrong. And how do good and godly people come to conclusions when it comes to that? We all have freedom in Christ to operate freely, but what do we do with those freedoms? What do we do with that liberty when there are differences in opinions? And this evening, we're going to try and begin to answer that question. We're not going to be able to fully answer it, but we're going to begin to answer that question through two ways. Two ways Christians ought to think about their Christian liberty in order to please God. Two ways Christians ought to think about their Christian liberty in order to please God. Now, the first way that Christians ought to think about their Christian liberty in order to please God is recognizing that our Christian liberties help us imitate Christ. Our Christian liberties help us imitate Christ. When we think about the book of Romans, the overall theme of the book is justification by faith or righteousness by faith. And as Paul writes, chapters 12 through 15 This particular section of text is showing believers how those who have been justified by faith ought to act in their lives, how they ought to live out that justification, that righteousness that's been given to them. Romans 14, the chapter right before this one, shows us this particularly by calling those who are, quote-unquote, stronger in the faith to show care for those who are, quote-unquote, weaker or younger in the faith. And the only reasons why I put, quote-unquotes, on stronger and weak is because it's not necessarily saying that because you're young, you're weak, or because you're old, you're strong, right? We know that when it comes to spiritual maturity, There are some people who are more mature than others, and chronological age doesn't always have a factor in it, but but we're just using the language that Paul is using. Okay, So when he says those who are stronger, he's talking about those who are more mature, those who have have been walking with the Lord a lot longer. When he's talking about those who are weaker, he's not saying that you're uh, in any sense deficient. He's just saying that you're not as mature as those who've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And so... When he's, when he's talking about how we are to care, how the stronger ones are to show care for those who are weaker, um, he's talking about their conscious issues. And he's saying that when it comes to conscious issues, those who are strong ought to care for those who are weaker in their consciences. Uh, we're not to cause them to violate their conscience because that would lead them to do what at least they believe is sin. 
And so as a result, Paul calls for the Romans to be mindful of their consciences and be willing not to be a stumbling block to other believers. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 15. Okay, And Paul says here, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So Paul, he continues his instructions to stronger believers to help them understand how they might use their Christian liberties or freedoms in order to care for their brothers and sisters. And he begins by saying, now we who are strong. You notice that as Paul writes that, he says, we, right, as we who are strong, you notice that he's including himself. Again, right, first person plural, we who are strong, that means that Paul considers himself strong. And you're probably thinking, yeah, of course, Paul is strong, right? He's an apostle. Why wouldn't he be strong in his faith? Why wouldn't he be strong in his Bible knowledge? Right? We're expecting that of him as an apostle. But when you look, when you look at what he is asking for those who are stronger in the faith to do, you're going to see that there is a great humility in what he's calling for all who are more mature in the faith to do when it comes to the practice of their liberty, Right, so what are we to do? Well, first, before we even get to that, notice that he says, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. Right? This word ought, it of course, means that believers, they have a strong obligation to do something. It's almost, it's almost like you have a debt that you must repay. Right? You have a strong obligation to do something. There is something that is expected of you because you are more mature in the faith. Now, what is expected of those who are more mature in the faith? Well, we are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. For some, this could mean that if we're strong, if we're going to only bear with the weaknesses of those without strength, that we are simply to just tolerate them. Tolerate the weaknesses of those who are without strength. You know, in our, in our modern use of language, the idea of bearing with something means to endure. Right? It means to have patience. You know, when, when I jokingly say, thank you for bearing with me all these years and listening to my terrible sermons, I'm not saying that it's been joyful for you, right? It probably hasn't been joyful for you. Instead, you've been patient with me, right? Kind towards me, willing to endure the terribleness of my preaching. And, um, you know, it's the same thing when it comes to, to bearing with other people, right? We bear with those who are often unlovable or annoying to us, right? It's this idea of, I'm simply going to tolerate you, and then after I don't have to tolerate you, I'm just going to give, you, give what you deserve. Right? There's, an, there's a sense of end to that. But this is not at all the sense that Paul has when he says that we are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. He's not saying, I only want you to tolerate one another. I only want you to endure, and then once you finish that obligation, you're released. He's not talking about a mere toleration. Turn with me to Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2. Galatians 
It says here, bear one another's burdens, right? There's that word bear again. And thereby, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. When Paul says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, and then he puts this in the context of thinking too highly of yourself, he's saying, for, he's, he's telling believers that they are not just, they're not to tolerate one another's burdens. He's calling for them to take on the burdens of another, to take on the other people's burdens, to lovingly assume those burdens and help them with those burdens, right? If you want to think about our Lord and Savior, when he was on, when he was on his way to Calvary, they grabbed someone from the crowd to help him carry that cross because he couldn't carry it anymore. He didn't have any more strength. So they took that guy, Simon, not the Simon that you think of, but they took another guy named Simon, right? And they had him bear the cross for Jesus. Or you think about it this way. Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he was being crucified on the cross for you, for me, right? He bore the weight the, the weight of punishment for all of our sins upon himself. That is not mere toleration. He assumed, he took on for himself everything that we deserved. And so what Paul is calling for these believers to do is he's, he's saying, for those of us who are strong, he says, you help carry those weaknesses that these younger believers, that these less mature believers have. And this doesn't necessarily mean that if you're more spiritually mature that you have to adopt or take on the conscious issues of those who are weaker. You don't have to conform your convictions towards theirs necessarily. You don't have to take that on and use that as your own forever. And what it does mean is that if a weaker brother or sister has a conscious issue and you're aware of that, that you're not critical of them. You're not condescending towards them, but you offer respect and consideration for practices you don't agree on. You don't jokingly tell them, oh, you still hold to that view, do you? Well, okay. And then just kind of like condescend to them in that way. Or you don't do that. You respect them. You care for them. The fact that we are to respect and consider the weaknesses of those who have weaker consciences or, or weaker convictions is seen at the end of the verse where it says that we are not just to please ourselves. There's a temptation for those of us who are more firm in our convictions to bear with the conscience issues of another only for a short time, essentially adopting the attitude of, I'll tolerate you and your conscience for now. I'll tolerate you and your conviction for now. But... I'm not going to bear with it forever. I'm going to teach you why you shouldn't be bugged by this thing so that I can get back to doing what I know I'm free to do. Sometimes we may feel like we don't want to put up with being mindful of others for too long. So we just try and teach them. We try and persuade them. We give them articles through messenger or email, and we're trying to say, see, you see, I'm right. John Piper agrees with me. John MacArthur agrees with me. Your conscience issue is nothing. Stop being so weak. It's easy to adopt that attitude because more often than not, we want to do what we want to do. 
We don't want someone looking over our shoulder saying, hey, hey, you're driving five miles over the speed limit. Speed limit says 60. You're going 65. You shouldn't be doing that. And we don't want people to tell us what to do. We would rather be free to do what we want to do. And so we tell people, get off my back. I'm free to do it. And here's all the scriptures that I have read and studied that allow for me to do the thing that I want to do. And so sometimes we feel like that is the better option. That's the better course of action. In order not to be a stumbling block, I'll just bowl you over, essentially. But if our convictions are genuinely allowable by the Scriptures we would eventually like to help our brothers and sisters see that, but our goal shouldn't be to force them to take on our convictions as soon as possible, but patiently, lovingly bring them along. Bring them along. Don't bowl them over. Don't force your opinion on them. Be patient with them. Verse 2, it demonstrates that as our command to please our neighbors uh, demonstrate, this is our command to please our neighbors, right? It says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Again, note, Paul includes himself in the ones who are to have this attitude. We are all, every single one of us, we are all to have this attitude where we care for our fellow brothers and sisters. We are to please our neighbor for the good of our neighbor. Now, notice that Paul does not allow for the weaker brother or sister in the faith to define what their good is, right? It is defined, it is limited by, to his edification, right? His good is described by, to his edification. It's limited by, to his edification, So this is not to be interpreted at all that older brothers or sisters in the faith ought to serve our younger believing siblings just because they believe, the neighbors believe, that they have needs that need to be met and that others should meet them because it is for their good. You might think that people won't try and abuse this verse, but I tell you they will. And I don't necessarily want this to be interpreted as we don't want for you to have the responsibility to lovingly uh, and sacrificially serve one another. But I want to point out the fact that our responsibility to please our neighbor for his or her good is not a blanket command that allows for younger believers to take advantage of those who are mature and say, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to take care of this or that for me because it's for my good that you do that. Right? Can you do my chores for me because I'm too busy? So can you do that? Uh, because it's for my good. I mean, that's just being lazy. Right? That's just being lazy. So I don't want anyone to abuse this verse and say to another, Paul says each of us is to please our neighbor. So in order for you to do what he says and please me, I need you to do this or that for me. Okay? It's not, that's not at all what this verse is saying. Yes. We are to love one another. We are to serve one another. And if you do realize that your roommate or your sibling or your parents are struggling with something that is their responsibility and you come and do it for them so they don't have to do it, that's just out of the kindness of your heart, right? That's a good thing, but that is not necessarily for their good, for their edification, okay? It's not the same thing. Paul specifically limits this idea 
of pleasing our neighbor for their good to giving preference to someone's conscience so we can build them up towards Christ's likeness. Our ultimate goal in caring for younger believers or believers with sensitive consciences is for them to be edified, for them to be built up in the faith so that one day they can be strong as well. Lord willing, that, Lord willing they would eventually come to have the same convictions as you, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Sometimes we will land on the same convictions, but other times our convictions won't match. And that's okay. Right? Because the thing that we want for every single one of you, the thing that God wants for every single one of you is that whatever you hold as a conviction is born out of the scriptures, that it comes from the scriptures. Whatever your philosophy might be, whatever your conviction might be in terms of what we do and how we do it, that it should come from the scriptures, that you should be able to go book, chapter, verse, and show people, this is why I believe what I believe. If our convictions are all born out of the scriptures, even if we have interpretive differences, at least it's coming from the scriptures. It's coming from a place that's trying to honor the scriptures. We will have interpretive differences, and we do have to be mindful of that, but we just want to make sure that whatever conviction we have, that it's coming from the scriptures. For example, if we know that it'll be a stumbling block to a fellow believer, if we drink a beer when we go get pizza or wings, then we who have come to the conviction that alcohol is okay as long as it's in moderation and it is consumed responsibly should be willing to lay aside our right to drink with our pizza for the good and edification of the other believer. We should be willing to lay aside that right. You have the freedom to do that, right? Drinking is not a sin. Being drunk is, and you've heard me use this example before, so you, but you have the right, right? You have the right to lay aside your liberty for the one who believes that it is sin for you to do so. You have the right to lay it aside. You know, or, or say this, we have a difference in opinions as to whether it is acceptable before the Lord to listen to secular music. Right? There are some people out there who believe that the only music that you can listen to is Christian music. And some people will even limit that and say, you can only listen to hymns. All this modern Christian music, oh, it's of the devil. Right? If someone has the conviction that secular music is okay to listen to and they're driving, right? and they're driving someone who believes that it is not right for us to listen to secular music because it could put dishonoring thoughts in our minds, which is not wrong, to be honest, then the one driving should be willing to lay aside their right to play their music, to uphold their own conviction, to please his or her passenger for that passenger's good, for their edification, so that you are not a stumbling block. Rather than say, well, it's my car, so you can either deal with it, you can find another ride. Adopting an attitude that is willing to please our neighbors, it is difficult. Because many of us we, you know, who have formed our convictions one way or another most likely have put some thought through our beliefs on the matter. Right? We most likely have our convictions for a reason because we've prayed through it, we've thought through it. 
and to lay it aside for someone else, to have respect for someone else's view, it can be difficult because we feel that we're in the right. And Paul, you know, he acknowledges that this can be the case, that it can be hard to lay down your right to do something. And so he uses Jesus as an example of why we should still give preference and respect, even if we don't feel like it. Verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul, he goes back to Jesus and he says, look at our Savior, brothers and sisters. Look at our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though he was God, he did not please himself or act in self-preservation, but instead chose to bear the insults that wicked men had for God upon himself. He chose to go on that cross to bear all of your sins on himself. All in order to accomplish God's plans. Right? Look at Christ's example. And by pointing to Jesus' example, Paul, he wants for believers to be reminded of the fact that deference to others is not something that is unfair. It's not something that's unreasonable, but it is something that our Savior did himself. Right? Not only did he do so because he loved God, yes, he did, right? but he did so in order to fulfill the Scriptures. And, and instead of pointing to a particular instance in Jesus' life, Paul brings up, Psalm 69, 9, part of it anyway, to show that Christ's sufferings were ordained by God. And even though Jesus had the right and the power not to go to the cross, to not bear the reproaches of God upon himself, what does it say? The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He willingly took that. He laid aside his right. He didn't care about himself and what he deserved. And he took on all the insults that wicked men had for God. And it's also possible, I'm not saying that it definitely is, but it's possible that Paul could be pointing those of us who have strong convictions and we don't want to give up our rights, we feel it's uncomfortable, or that it's, just a burden. It could be that Paul's pointing us to Christ's example and says, hey, serving our brothers and sisters on occasion by deferring our use of our own personal liberties is not that much of a burden, is not that much of a trial in comparison with what Christ bore for us on the cross. Now, it might seem weird for us to look at verse 4 and, and look at that and say, well, Paul, why did you put that here? Uh, why did you include this verse here? Well, you know, when we look at verse 4, you'll see that it is explaining verse 3. It starts with 4, right? So it's explaining the scripture usage that Paul just used. is explaining why Paul put Psalm 69.9 in there. It's acting as a parenthesis to show believers that his call for them to imitate Christ's example in deferring to others' consciences is not an inappropriate use of scripture, but is in line with what God intended for all believers to understand about Christ's sacrifice, 
about Christ's work on the cross. You know, we, you know that we are not bound to obey all of the Old Testament anymore because Christ died on the cross for us and he freed us from the burden of having to obey the law. But the Old Testament is still useful in helping us learn how to grow to be more like Christ as we wait to go home to be with God. God gave us the Old Testament so that we might have hope. The instructions from the scriptures, it allows for us to persevere and to be encouraged from the scriptures in this life. And that all fuels the hope that we have in God. So as we think about how we are to come alongside and bear the weaknesses of those who have a weaker conscience so that we can imitate Christ in our care for one another, we do have to be careful to consider whether our convictions are in fact honoring to God. You know, Paul, when he's writing to these Roman believers, he's assuming that a good number of them are mature, that they have solid convictions based off of the scriptures. But it would be good for us to examine our convictions to make sure that they are right before the Lord too. How did you come to your convictions? Are your convictions actually based off of scripture or is it just based off of, it's not hurting anybody, so why can't I do it? I don't have time to list out all the different things that we can have differences on in terms of gray areas, but take some time to think about why you do what you do. Would Jesus be pleased with how you go about living your life? Would he be pleased with the things that you do at home, with the things that you do on the road, with the things that you do in public? Would he be pleased with that? Would he be pleased with the attitude that you have towards one another? Are your convictions shaped by the scriptures, or are you just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff? It is possible that your convictions or lack thereof is just a covering for sin. It's on the TV anyway. It's on free, free broadcast anyway, so why shouldn't I stream it? If our convictions are a covering for sin, when you try and convince other people that their convictions are too stiff, you're in danger of leading them into sin too. Are you not? If your convictions are not actually based off of the scriptures, but are instead an excuse to allow for you to continue doing what is not honorable before the Lord, what is not pleasing before the Lord, when you convince other people that it's okay, you're leading them into sin as well. We are called by God to care for one another and to bear the weaknesses of those who have sensitive consciences. In doing so, we'll be growing ourselves and them in Christ's likeness as we model the deference our Savior had for us to them so that they can learn from our example and hopefully do the same for others. And this is why when it comes to our convictions and the way that we do things, we want to make sure that whatever we do, we honor Christ. Whatever we do, we're pleasing him in everything. And that leads us to the second way that we ought to think about our liberty in order to please God, and that is recognizing that our Christian liberties help us glorify God. Our Christian liberties help us glorify God. So after explaining how mature believers can care for those who don't share in their convictions, Paul breaks out in a prayer wish 
a prayer for all of the Roman believers that he writes to. And he prays, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just in verse 4, Paul reminds his readers that what was written in earlier times, what was written, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Yet, what we see here in verse 5 is he says that God is the one who gives perseverance and encouragement. Is this a mistake? Did he mix it up? Obviously, no. This is intentional by Paul as he draws the connection between the scriptures and God. The scriptures might instruct us so so that we can persevere and be encouraged, so that we can have hope for the trials to come. But the scriptures are also given to us by God. They don't come out of a vacuum. Right? The scriptures do not give us perseverance and comfort in and of themselves, but they give us perseverance and comfort because they are God's words to us. Because they are by nature representative of God. Because they come from God. So it's not contradictory to look at the scriptures and say that they give us perseverance and encouragement. While at the same time saying that God gives us those things as well. Right? So when you suffer... When you're going through a hard time and you're discouraged and we tell you to look to the scriptures for comfort, we're not telling you to look at some book that can make you feel better if you read it enough and use its contents to force your mind to think rightly. We're telling you to go to the God who gave you these scriptures. So that you can be with him. See what instruction he has laid down for you to learn from in the past. And think about how you are to live out those truths that he has revealed to you in those scriptures. The scriptures are the very word of God and they represent him perfectly. And so when we see the example of Christ, not seeking his own good but the ultimate glory of God and the good for all who will believe in him, we ought to consider our liberties, our rights, as Christ did, something to lay down. We have them, we have these rights, but we also have the right to lay down our rights, to not pursue our rights. And so after describing God as the one who gives perseverance and encouragement we see the content of Paul's prayers. He prays that God may give them, may grant them to be of the same mind, be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So when he's praying for this, what does this mean? When Paul prays that God may grant them to be of the same mind, he's not praying that that they all have groupthink. He's not praying that they all end up thinking the same thing. He's not praying for a hive mind. He is not even praying that they would eventually all hold to the same convictions. So there's no more need for the strong to defer to the weak. If you think about it, in Christianity today, there are still good and godly men and women who differ on many points of doctrine and the practices that flow out of those points of doctrine. 
Right? We you know, think about infant baptism, for instance. We have good and godly men who differ on whether infants can rightfully be baptized and whether that's a legitimate baptism before the Lord or not. Right? And this is not to say that the evidence of people differing over what doctrine is in Scripture and what it says and how we ought to practice is not to say that God has failed to grant this prayer request to Paul because people don't all hold to the same convictions now. Right? And, and yet, at the same time, we can still say that we're of one mind in many different aspects. When Paul is, not, when Paul is praying that unity will be achieved by those who are uh, you know, um, when Paul is praying for unity, he's not praying that unity will be achieved by those who are uh, weaker in the faith, just surrendering their unsatisfactory theology or the strong giving up their good theology. He's praying that they will be unified by learning to love and accept one another despite their differences. Right? So he's not praying that the strong ones go around and bully other people into their positions or the weak ones go around and bully other people into their positions, right? he's saying that despite your differences, despite your differences in, in conviction, that you would still love and accept one another. You would still recognize each other as brother and sister. He is praying that we would all, regardless of our spiritual maturity levels or convictions, would be in agreement with what the Bible does say and not allow for disagreement about non-essential issues to be a source of conflict between us. When Paul prays that this unity of mind is according to Christ Jesus. He is praying that our unity would reflect, would be in accordance with the example of Christ. That the mutual love and laying down of rights out of love when it comes to the use of our liberties should be the same as our Savior's. We're not higher than he is, are we? So we should reflect the same willingness to defer to others as he did. Why? Verse 6. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why we want to act in love when it comes to the use of our Christian liberty is because we want our unity to bring us together so that we can with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes... When people within the church disagree on points of doctrine, people will come up with or come into these arguments about doctrine or practice and say that those who are fighting over doctrine are causing division in the church and that we shouldn't fight. Hopefully you haven't seen that in our actual church, but I can tell you I've read a lot of Christian blogs where in the comment section people are tearing into each other, calling each other heretics or just other horrible, nasty things because they don't hold to the same doctrine that they do. Right? Or that they're unloving and because of their theological convictions they are unnecessarily causing division within the church. When people say that, when people say that we shouldn't fight over doctrine because we're tearing the church apart, because we're tearing the body apart, they're partially right, 
Because God is not glorified when we are being nasty with one another, when we're tearing each other down and trying to show our belief superiority over theirs. He's not honored in that. He is not pleased in that. Even if you are right, even if you are holding to right doctrine, if you do so, if you defend the truth in an unloving way, in an unchristlike way, and you are tearing down the beliefs and thoughts of another, even if they're wrong, you don't bring honor to God. You don't glorify him. You bring shame to his name because you chose you chose to sinfully assert truth over someone as a weapon. God is not honored in that. Yes, you may be right, but you've done so in sin. And it is good for us not to fight. It is good for us not to fight, but there are times where disagreement over doctrine is important because we are fighting for an accurate view of what the scriptures teach and we're fighting to be most consistent with what God says and who God says he is. And despite that, despite the necessity at times to sit down and try to come to an agreement as to what the scriptures say, despite the necessity that we might need to fight for that, the reason why it is good for us to be unified and not fight is because we as the body, despite our differences, show what the gospel can do when people of different ethnicities, social backgrounds, maturity levels, etc., come together to worship God and glorify him. God's greatness and goodness is put on full display when we are willing to lay aside our Christian liberties for the sake of our brothers and sisters because it shows that not even our differences are enough to keep us from being the family of God to one another. That God's salvation is strong enough to bring those with different convictions together and unify them around Christ's death and resurrection. That is what brings God great glory and honor. Not only among those who are in the church, but also among those in the world who see how different we can be on the outside, but unified because of our faith in Christ. Of course, as much as I say that, right, we, we, we do have to be careful and discerning when it comes to this idea that we want to focus on the gospel and not worry about non-essential issues, because that can lead us into trouble. It can especially lead us into trouble when we are partnering with other believers who say, well, what we have in common together is the gospel, so forget the other doctrines. The gospel is the most important thing. Let's work together for evangelistic purposes to bring people to Christ. That is sometimes okay, but it can be dangerous as well. It can be dangerous as well, because if we're partnering with professing believers who have drastically different doctrines than we do, it can be a very confusing message for others. And for example, we want to be discerning about partnering together for gospel purposes with people who don't believe in the authority of Scripture the way that we do, because the Scriptures are not their guide for what they believe. 
But as a result, the way that they think about God is not always going to be in line with what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures, thus making him a God of their own imagination or invention rather than the God of the Bible. We just have to be really, really careful when it comes to saying that we're just going to focus on the essentials and worry about the non-essentials because who gets to define what the non-essentials are? And that's the question that we have to ask. Who gets to define what the non-essentials are? I would venture to say, and I hope you would agree, that God gets to define what the non-essentials are. And he tells us that, not directly, but indirectly through his word. What the scriptures say tells us what's essential and what we ought to be holding to and what's non-essential. In general, unity in the essentials, such as the gospel, is a very good thing. But when it comes to these non-essential issues or doctrines, I mean, you, know, you think about it, what's a, what's a non-essential doctrine? What are we saying about the Word of God when we say that there is a non-essential doctrine in here? It's like saying, well, you can read every part of the Bible. Every part of the Bible is good for you and is profitable for you in your growth in, in Christ, except for Leviticus because that's boring. We don't say that. We wouldn't hold to that. So we have to be careful when it comes to what's a non-essential doctrine. Now, granted, I understand what people mean when they say there's non-essential doctrines and there are things that are just not worth dying for, uh, not worth losing friendships for, or or, uh, not worth losing friendships over. But we have to be very, very careful when it comes to that because sometimes what people will say is, you know what's not essential? What's not essential is the end times. We don't really know what that is anyway. It's really hard. There's a lot of visions. Who cares about the end times? All we know is that we're going to be with Christ. It's going to be good. Non-essential doctrine. Let's just focus on the gospel. And I will tell you that your hope is tied to what you believe will be coming in the future. Or your hope is tied to what God says about himself in the future. If there's no hope for Israel, if God can willingly just cast aside his chosen people and then say, oh, well, the church believes in me, so I'll take on the church. And that Israel showing up in Revelation is not Israel itself, but just the Israel of God, the church. Then you and I ought not to have any comfort whatsoever that God would not reject us when we sin. There's no hope in that. Because when we play fast and loose with what the text says, what's to say that God will be tired of us and then choose to have a new Israel that will follow after him and please him and do everything that we want, that we can't? So when we talk about these non-essentials, we have to be really, really careful. The practice of our Christian liberties or laying aside our rights to practice our Christian liberty it can help us glorify God because we demonstrate humility not only in our desire to be like Christ, but also the amazing power of God to save for himself peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the Gospels. It shows that though we have our liberties, the practice of our liberties 
is not as important as showing one another Christ in the way that we relate to one another. It shows people that though it may have seemed that a lot of Christians are all about themselves and what they can get out of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the most important relationship that believers have and should prioritize is their relationship with Christ. That Christ is far more important to believers than our own ability to practice our freedoms. You know, we've spent this whole night talking about our Christian freedoms and how that affects body life. And rightly so. Rightly so, because that's what Paul puts in here. His limit and scope is about how we interact with one another in the body. But have you also ever thought about how your use of Christian liberty can affect non-believers as well? Right? Like it or not, there is a certain stereotype of what a Christian looks like in the media. While it can be good to bust those stereotypes from time to time, we as believers, we really need to stop and think about whether it's actually worth the free and independent use of our liberty if it might be a stumbling block to someone else. Now, there are some in our theological camp who believe that we are free in Christ to smoke cigars and drink beers with unbelievers where believers are, so that we can have opportunities to reach them for the gospel. And while it may be true that you could probably share the gospel with someone you normally wouldn't if you went into a bar, you meet them where they're at, I do think that we ought to exercise a little more caution when it comes to our witness. Some will look at practicing our liberty and instead of being impressed of how free we are to practice our faith and still enjoy a drink or a smoke, will look at us and they'll sneer because they found another example of a hypocrite who says that they love Jesus, but they do the exact same thing that they do. Not every unbeliever thinks that they're good people. Some of them do know that they are not good people that they are sinners before God. And if they look at you enjoying your freedom, they won't necessarily be like, wow, Christians can do that? I want to be a Christian. They might look at that and say, you're just like me. Why should I believe anything you have to say? Because you act just like me. Granted, they might not know you. And you can argue that they're just being judgmental. But I think we ought to be mindful of the potential of being stumbling blocks and just limit our freedom to practice our liberties so as not to be that stumbling block to either believer or unbeliever because ultimately what we want in the practice of our liberties is for God to be worshipped and glorified, not having the ability to do whatever we wish. Paul prays that we would be of the same mind when it comes to how we practice our Christian liberties so that we might glorify our God and Father who sent us our Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays this prayer so that we would remember the most important thing to think about when it comes to the issues of conscience and Christian liberty is not whether we can do them, but whether we can glorify God in the way that we practice or don't practice our liberty. If we can say, yes, that we are glorifying God in the practice of our liberty, praise God. Let's continue to practice our liberty so long as we continue to glorify him and are willing to give that liberty up 
around certain individuals if it becomes an issue for them. But if we cannot say yes, if we cannot say that our, our practice of our liberty is glorifying to God, then let us strive to reconsider our practice so that we can be a picture of Christ and glorify God in what we choose to do. We're definitely privileged to live in this country where we're free to gather together as believers and worship whenever we want. We have an opportunity also, because of the freedoms afforded to us here in this country, to experience some of the best things that the world has to offer. While we celebrate our freedom and rejoice in it, we are reminded by Paul this evening that some of the Christian liberties we can enjoy in Christ is much like our freedoms in this country. We might have ample opportunity to be free, but there are some aspects of freedom that we cannot necessarily enjoy as we want to. While Paul doesn't prohibit the use of our Christian liberties, he does remind us that we are to be mindful of those among us who might have weaker consciences, weaker convictions than we do regarding what we can rightfully do without bringing shame to Christ. And as a result, we ought to reconsider the way that we exercise our liberties, being mindful of how the way we approach those liberties help us imitate Christ and it helps us glorify God. When we say that our Christian liberties do not give us the right to do whatever we want, but gives us the right to lay down our rights, this is where that idea comes from. It's not a platitude. It's not a concept that Christians made up to damper the fun of other Christians. In our love for fellow believers, in our love for God, we use the liberty that he gives us in order to bring him great glory. And even though it might be hard, I mean, we strive to always use our liberties to bring him glory. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider the liberties that we have in you, we realize that we are free in a lot of different ways in our Christian life. We're free from the curse of sin. We're free from worry that we might be separated from you forever. We're free to love one another, even if it means that we must lay down our own rights and our own desires. And Father, as we consider this harder aspect of our freedom, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to have eyes to see to have eyes that are mindful of how perhaps the use of our liberty can affect others. We pray that you give us soft hearts for one another, that we would not look down upon those who have weaker consciences and that we would consider them more than ourselves and that we would choose for their edification to do other things rather than what we are rightfully free to do if it is if it is a stumbling block. Father, we do pray that you help us to examine the way that we live our lives. Help us to be humble and truthful and honest when it comes to the way that we evaluate how we live in our lives, how we operate in our day-to-day. And Lord, if there's anything that we do that dishonors you, we pray that you would help us just to do what is right. 
to choose rather than to say, I'm free, don't worry about it. Rather say, I'm free to do what pleases God, and I'd rather do that than to participate in things that would embarrass Jesus if he were here. Father, we pray that you would help us just to desire, first and foremost, your glory and your honor in the way that we use our liberty. Thank you for your precious word. May we seek to live by it and honor it in everything. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.